0: Thank you for listening to the Potter's House Tri-Cities Podcast, located here in Pasco, Washington, where lives are still being changed for Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoy it. Of July. It's beautiful outside, but uh, I'm not going to go the traditional route today, preach about freedom or any of that stuff. Uh, Freedom is great. We live in the greatest country in the world. We really do. You look around, there's no question about it. Our country's got issues. We've got problems. Sin is everywhere, but at the end of the day, we are the greatest country in the world. We are blessed to be geographically where we are. That's something that we oftentimes take for granted, you know, look at the world, look at the people in other countries, impoverished, um, don't even know when their next meal is going to be, and here we are, you guys are just waiting for me to get the sermon over with so we can stuff our faces on this 4th of July. We are a blessed nation, don't forget it, so anyway, that's not my sermon, but just wanted to get that out there. Um, You can open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We'll be reading there in a moment. There's a story about a judge whose own son was brought before him for a crime he had committed. The judge felt deep grief that his son would violate the laws upon which he based his entire life. Tears welled up in his eyes, and he listened painfully as the evidence against his son was presented. The courtroom sat in silence, wondering how the judge would rule. Would he just give him a reprimand and an act of mercy? Or would he give him the minimum penalty for the offense? Much to their surprise, he handed down the maximum fine to his son, upholding the law to its fullest degree. The son was in shock, for he knew that he couldn't pay the fine, and he was anguished at the thought of imprisonment. He looked up at him in disbelief. But then, something happened that nobody expected. The judge stepped down from his bench, he took off his judge's robe, and then, as his father, told his son how much he loved him, and then paid out of his own pocket the fine that he had just handed down. Not everyone understood what he had done. As a judge, he showed his commitment to honor the law to its fullest. But he then stepped down from that seat of honor and showed his love for his child. His son never understood the depth of his father's commitment to the law until that moment. And until that moment, he never understood the depths of his father's love for him. He felt deep sorrow for the pain that he had caused him and for those he had hurt by the act of his crime. With his head bowed and tears flowing freely, he asked his father for forgiveness, which he willingly and freely gave him. You see, we all know that committing crimes comes with a cost. And like this man, we too have committed crimes against God with fines that we cannot pay. God, being a just God, must uphold his righteous law. But also being a God who was rich in mercy, came to earth in the form of man and paid our price so that we wouldn't have to. So that we could be alive with him and not have to pay the eternal consequences of our sin. Let's read our text in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place, God. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, God, would help the message this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would deliver the message to your people that you desire to tell them, God, that it wouldn't be by my words, God, or by my intellect, God, but by your Holy Spirit that would penetrate the hearts and the minds of the people in this place, God. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy that you bestow upon us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first I want to talk about Our situation of being condemned in our sin. You see, the cost of our sin is immense. Romans 6.23 puts it very plainly. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And this isn't speaking of an earthly death because, well, we've all sinned and look at us, we're all alive. This isn't a physical death, but rather an eternal death of our spirit. What is an eternal death of our spirit? Well, Revelations 21.8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for the murderers, for the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This ultimately is the eternal consequences of our sin. If we try to handle this life on our own. It might seem harsh. It might seem brutal. However you want to put it. But at the end of the day. This is how it is. Galatians 6 verses 7 through 8 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows. He will also reap. And the one who sows in his own flesh. Will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit. Will from the spirit reap eternal life. What does that mean? God is not mocked. You see, God is perfect. And despite our best efforts, apart from Jesus, we can't do this on our own. Our best efforts are not enough. And when it says God is not mocked, there's so many people in this world that act like they've got it together. They might be rich, they might be famous, they might drive nice cars, they might have a big house. They might think they got it all together, but they don't. And what this is saying is God's not mocked. You can act like you got it all together, but at the end of the day, you're not good enough. Apart from Christ, we cannot do this. We are condemned in our sin without Christ. That's just the reality of it. John chapter 3 verse 18 says, "Whoever believes in him is not condemned." Oh, there's some hope. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Apart from Christ, we are condemned in our sin. But the reality is, no matter how good or how bad we think we are, or how bad we think someone is, we're just not good enough. There's no scale that weighs our rights and our wrongs. If we sin, we're condemned in that sin. Period. That's it. James chapter 2, verses 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So, what does that mean? What is that talking about? Well, think about the engine in a car. You don't have to be a mechanic to understand this, because I'm certainly not. But a complete and good shape engine starts up, it fires, and it drives your car, right? But as soon as you're missing one part, that engine ain't going nowhere. You're stopped in your tracks. And God says it's all or nothing. You either keep the whole law and are righteous or you break just one part of the law, and you're condemned by the whole law. So either your motor runs or it doesn't. So whether you drove your motor like Vin Diesel on Fast and Furious, you blew the engine, you took it all apart, you threw a stick of dynamite in there, blew it up and scattered it across the country, or you're only missing one gear, it doesn't matter. A broken engine is a broken engine. So when you're speaking of cars, you can repair motors, you can buy a whole new one. But the reality is, when it comes to our sin, there's there's only one soul. You only get one chance. And we've all already blown it. And there's only one mechanic who can repair that. See, we've broken something that we can't fix. And that's our soul. And only Jesus Christ himself can fix that. The question is, will you allow Jesus to repair in our lives what we've broken? He's here. He's waiting for us to turn to Him and turn away from our broken lives. But sometimes we won't. Why won't we turn from our broken lives? What is it that holds us back? You come across people so often, they know their lives are broken. They know they need Jesus. They know they need change, but yet they just won't do it. They're afraid. What are they afraid of? Why would somebody be afraid to turn to Jesus? There's a fear of failure. I see so many people, they think, oh, if I try it, I'm just going to fail. Do you see, Jesus was perfect. We don't have to live up to that expectation. He did it for us. We fear that we'll backslide. We fear that we'll fail in our faith. But the reality is, if we rely on the Helper, we rely on the Holy Spirit, we can do this. We can carry through to the end. Some people fear rejection. Rejection from the people in their old lives—they think we're fake. They think we're phony. They think we're going to come riding through on our high horse, condemning people. You know that—that's and—and there's some truth to that. That might happen, and this is the fear that holds people back, or fear from rejection from the people in their new life. They think, oh, they're going to judge me because of the sins that I've committed, because of the things that I've done. They might not respect me. They might think my faith is fake. And again, that could happen. But these are the fears. These are the things that people worry about. They're willing to live in their sin another day because they're afraid. They fear of being let down. Because they think that coming into a church means they have to rely on the other people there. They have to rely on the pastor. They have to rely on the leaders of the church. They've been let down so many times before by other people. Why are people in the church any different? The truth is, the the people in the church aren't any different. The only difference is that we have Jesus. I will let each and every one of you down. That's just a simple fact. And you will let each other down. We have to rely on Christ and Christ alone. He is the only one who will not let us down. Some people believe the lie that they're too far gone. I've heard it so many times before. Oh man, I've done too much for Jesus to save me. I've sinned too much. I've done this. I've done that. Listen, homie, I hate to break it to you, but you ain't as bad as you think you are. And Jesus has a way of breaking through to the too-far-gone crowd. Let's consider Paul the apostle, the man who wrote the text that we read this morning. You see, before Paul became an apostle, he was a wicked dude. He was there when they stoned Stephen, watching and approving of it. He was glad they did it. They stoned Stephen for preaching the gospel. And he literally went from house to house arresting Christians, dragging them before the courts. And he was on his way to arrest Christians for their faith and seeking their execution for their faith. When he was confronted by Jesus himself and converted. You think you're bad. What about Mary Magdalene? A lot of people don't realize this. She wasn't just some lady who followed Jesus around. I mean, she was, but that wasn't all she was. Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 2 says this about Mary Magdalene. Soon afterward, he went through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also came some women who had been healed of of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. You see, Mary was possessed by seven demons. And we don't know what Mary did before she encountered Jesus. We don't know what she went through. But I can tell you this, you don't just get possessed. You do things, you make decisions, you go through some things, and things happen to you that cause this to happen. It doesn't just happen. And Jesus cast the demons out from her, and you see her constantly throughout the Gospels following Jesus faithfully. And God takes her from someone who's possessed by seven demons to being honestly privileged to be the first person to witness the resurrection, to see Jesus alive after he rose from the dead. Mary Magdalene was the first person to see him. And if you think seven demons is a lot, not too long after that, Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, it's a bit of reading, but it's a remarkable story, says this. And they sailed to the country Now, before I continue, I want to make note of this. This man's possessed by many demons, and those demons know exactly who just showed up on the scene. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command him to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these pigs. So he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw this, they saw what happened. They fled and told the city city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what happened. And there they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people surrounding the city asked him to depart from them. And they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with, go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. In one encounter with Jesus, a man with a legion of demons was healed and returned to his right mind and then commissioned by Jesus to go and tell people. He went from demon possessed, out of his mind, out of society to in his right man, mind and com- commissioned by Jesus as an evangelist basically. And again, this man just like Mary Magdalene, we don't know how he got possessed by a legion of demons. But you don't just one day get possessed, you know, demons don't just right into you. You have to open a door somewhere. These were people who before they encountered Jesus were wicked people. It's just the truth of it. And Jesus healed them. And these people all have one, one thing in common. Their lives were jacked up until they had an encounter with Jesus. And these type of conversions happen outside of the Bible too. And they still happen today. A little over 10 years ago, there's a story of a man, his name is Abdul Masi. He's from northern Nigeria, and his goal was to exterminate all Christians. They called him Mr. Insecticide, because they compared Christians to bugs. And if you had a bug problem, you needed insecticide, so you called this man. Abdul Masi specialized in harassing Christians by setting off car bombs, and burning the homes and churches of christians and one time abdul masi organized a church burning after uh, organized a church burning and after it had taken place he returned to the church to gloat over his latest victory except this time it was different the members of that church had gathered inside their burnt building and they were singing praises to the lord abdul masi looked at them and thought what is going on what is their problem Fascinated by their dedication to their church and their God, Abdul Masi decided to investigate. He decided to infiltrate the church and his idea was, I'm going to be on the inside and I'm going to see how these Christians' minds work. That's how I'll be able to fight them better. So for six years, Abdul Masi lived a double life, splitting time between his mosque and the church. And one day, Abdelmaski accepted an invitation to a revival where a preacher taught a lesson on the story of Elijah, who called out the people of Israel for being double-minded. The pastor looked at the audience and said, Are you sick of living a double life? You need to stop deceiving people and need to decide who you're going to serve. Abdul Masi was certain that someone had told the pastor his story, but they hadn't. It was the Holy Spirit working through the words of the preacher to touch the heart of Abdul Masi. And he stood up, went to the altar, and decided to follow Christ wholeheartedly. This man who was once a murderer of Christians, converted into the love of Christ. You're not too far gone. God is so rich in mercy. Not only willing to forgive, but he will forgive you and then restore you. And then use you and fill your life with joy. These are just a few examples of God's boundless mercy. And there are countless lives that have been radically changed by life. And some within this very church. You're never too far. God's mercy is incomprehensible to us so what is mercy really you guys ever play the game mercy as kids you know what i'm talking about you lock hands like this with the other person and you're supposed to twist each other's arms until one of you guys has the advantage over the other one it doesn't look like a victory position but you're kind of like this and the other person's like this and then they have to cry mercy 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 And what happens is is when you get when you find yourself in that position, you have no control. You're stuck, you're done, it's over. And if you've ever won the game of mercy, you know you have control over that person. If you ever lost, you know you're done. You can't move. You literally have physical control over that person and you cry out for mercy. And if you play the game right, you're supposed to allow the person up. However, you know, it doesn't always go that way. So the definition of mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So we've already established that we've all blown it. God has every right to punish us for our sins. He has the authority to punish us for our sins. But instead, he extends compassion and forgiveness to us if we accept it. You see, when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, they turned from God. God could have just ended them right there and quit on them. And he had every right to do so. And let's see, how, let's see how God interacts with them right after they committed their sins. Genesis 3 verses 8 through 11 says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to them and said to them, Where are you? Little hint, he knew exactly where they were, just so y'all know. And he said to them, I heard, uh, he said to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knew exactly what happened. Think about this God gave them one rule. Just one rule. And they broke it. And yet he approaches them in the garden with mercy. He gives them a chance to confess. He doesn't come after them condemningly. And God knew, they, God knew already what went down. He could have, as soon as they took that bite of the, of the forbidden fruit, he could have went, dead. It's over. You guys blew it. And he would have had every right to do so. God is a righteous God. God is a God of laws. We break the laws, there's consequences. And he could, have, he could have made them pay their consequences in that moment. But he didn't. He extended mercy to them. You see a little farther down in Genesis 3 verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They messed up. They sinned. And yet God, rich in his mercy, in the midst of their failures, blesses them with clothes. Because they can no longer bear to be naked in the presence of other people. They're embarrassed. And God says, yeah, you messed up. Let me help you make the situation a little bearable. You see, they sewed together their own fig leaves. I don't know if you guys have ever worn clothes out of leaves. I personally haven't. But I imagine it would be very itchy. But you see, this isn't even the greatest form of mercy in this situation that takes place. In the midst of God passing down their punishment, in the midst of God having mercy on them by allowing them to live, he also promises them redemption. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, and I will, he's speaking to, to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see, this is a very simple verse that many people just read over and they don't think much about it. But if you look closely, there's a lot packed into this one very verse. God is not just rebuking a snake. Yes, the story is of the serpent tempting the woman, but we know that that snake is actually Satan himself. God is rebuking Satan. And it says enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I don't know if you guys paid attention in biology class or not, but a woman does not have a seed. The male has the seed. God created man and woman, so of course he knows that. So what does he mean? In this moment, moments after their first sin, God is already foretelling of the first coming of Christ. The promises of Christ's redemption wasn't just an idea that God had later on. You see, the seed he's talking about is the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit conceiving a child within Mary's womb. He's foretelling of the coming of Christ. And he's saying, this man, Jesus Christ, will bruise you on the head. In other words, he's going to kill you. And you shall bruise him on the heel. We all know Jesus went through some things. From the devil. But I don't know about you guys. Would you rather have your head crushed or your heel crushed? Jesus won. Jesus took some damage, but he won. The damage was necessary for our redemption. The promise of Christ's redemption is hidden right here. It's the, it's the first foretelling of man's redemption through Christ. This is how much mercy God has for us in a moment where he could have crushed us and ended us, a short-lived tale of humanity. But instead, he promises victory over Satan for mankind through Jesus. God stuck with us. He stuck with us through our mess, desiring for us to accept this gift of mercy. And it's something that we have to accept. We have to claim it. George Wilson, in the year 1830, was convicted of mail fraud and was sentenced to death. But since Wilson's brother had done Andrew Jackson, the president at the time, a great personal service, President Jackson wrote George Wilson a pardon. When the pardon was delivered to his cell, however, Wilson refused to take it. The man who was sentenced to die refused to receive the pardon what to do. When the case went before the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote his decision, and it said a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon at all, simply a piece of paper. Thus, George Wilson must be hanged. Why he decided to decline it, I don't know. But Jesus says to us, you're forgiven if you'll take the pardon I offer. If you don't, you render it meaningless, and you will be sentenced to death eternally. You see, Jesus bore our sins, and he looked on us with mercy and compassion. But we must accept it before it can do anything for us. Jesus was beaten, bruised, and battered. Crown of thorns shoved on his head and hung on the cross for our sins. And he did this not reluctantly, but willingly for us. Luke 23 verse 34. While Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's literally bearing the pain for our sins. Hanging on the cross to his death. Crown of thorns shoved in his head head after being beaten senseless the scriptures say that he was whipped and beaten so badly you couldn't even recognize him you couldn't even tell it was a human this is what jesus went through for us carried his cross hung on the cross for us and he says father forgive them for they know not what they do you see we're fooling ourselves if we think that those people hung jesus on the cross The truth is, we hung Jesus on the cross. We weren't physically there, but every time the hammer came down, it was one of us swinging that hammer. Every thorn in his crown was one of our sins. Every lash on his back was something we did. And this isn't to make us feel guilty, but this is to make us realize what Jesus went through for us. And he didn't do it because he had to. He didn't do it because his daddy told him to. He didn't do it. He wasn't forced into it. He did it for us. This is the mercy of our God. He did it so that we could have eternity with Him. So that He could pay the fines that we couldn't pay. Because if it wasn't Jesus receiving that, it was us. So not only did He see us wicked and sinful and have every right to end us, but He had compassion for us and He took on our punishment for our sins so that we could spend eternity with Him. So let's read our main text one more time, plus a few more verses. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show hit the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God didn't have to do any of this. We shouldn't look at this as something to be guilty about, but it's something that we can look at and claim confidently. God did it out of His immeasurable grace and mercy towards us. And because of that, we can claim this gift confidently. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let me tell you, our time of need is every second of every day. We can't claim we're too far gone. We can't be afraid of what might happen. We just have to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence in what God has for us. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Oftentimes people leave out 17, it's pretty good too. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God created us to be with Him. That is literally the reason why God created mankind, was to be with God. We've made our decisions, we've sinned and made our mistakes. And separated ourselves from him. But once again by the abundant mercy of God. He filled that gap. And said you just simply have to come. And accept this gift. In our presence of our maker is the only place that we find true joy and peace. God's desire since the moment mankind sinned. Was not to condemn us but to redeem us so that we could still have that joy and peace. And the question is, will we accept it? Can I have every head bowed and every eyes closed? You've just listened to the Potter's House Tri-Cities Podcast located here in Pasco, Washington. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you come back for more.